You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Philoctetes is not the best-known Sophocles tragedy, at least not these days, but its questions stick with me. When the title character insists on his dignity as the man of war who's been wronged, he runs afoul of Odysseus that Sophocles invents, a character who couldn't care less about the wounded warrior's sense of being wronged. And so Odysseus enlists Neoptolemus, the son of Achilles, who insists that abstract virtues of war must govern everything that concerns the struggle. I won't spoil the ending of Philoctetes today, but I will say that conflicting values have not become any less interesting in the two and a half millennia since Sophocles. Dr. Valerie Tiberius has brought that conversation off of the mythological battlefield and into the very real tensions between money and reputation, politeness and peace of mind, and different kinds of abstract principles in her recent book, What Do You Want Out of Life? from Princeton University Press. And Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome her to the show. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Tiberius. Thanks. It's great to be here. I've had the good fortune here recently of talking to a number of authors who are bringing philosophy to a readership beyond the academy and beyond the classroom. Yours is the first interview I've conducted uh, with an author who states an intention to uh, to devote attention to doing philosophy as a woman. So what elements of philosophy are constants when we look across those kinds of projects, and which ones are specific when a thinker starts with your approach? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I guess I think, well, first thing I think is that um, if you asked 10 different women philosophers this question, you'd probably get 10 different answers. Um, But the way I think about it is the methods that I use that I kind of love from my training in philosophy are, they're um, perennial. So, you know, the, the kind of clear analytic thinking, defining your terms, um, having a kind of um, consistency of use of language throughout a project, uh, synthesizing ideas in a way that's, you know, clear that all those kinds of methods I'm, I think are, you know, the same, no matter who you are and what kind of philosophy you're doing. I guess when it comes to, because the topics I work on actually connect with people's lives. Uh, so, you know, I work on well being and happiness and, personal virtues. Um, I do think that uh, whoever's writing about those topics, it's inevitable that their own experience enters into it, their experience with the world. And so I think that my the, the kind of details of my account when you come down from the definitions of terms and the and the and the arguments down to you know how does this apply in real life i think that's the place where different experiences enter and change the way that a theory gets made practical if that makes sense oh that makes good sense and you know what's interesting is uh two of these books i've i've read four recent books that are you know bringing philosophy to the people Two of them were co-authored, so I, I just now did the math in my mind, and three of the six of you are women, uh, but so far you're the only one who has said, you know, I am writing this as a woman, and I'm going to be asking questions as a woman. So I, like I said, I mean, it jumped out me at me precisely because, uh, you know, it, it became an issue in this book, and I thought, you know, it probably should have been an issue in those other books, but it just didn't occur to me. Well, so w- one thing that kind of motivated me in this direction to 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 say that and to think in those terms was listening to some talks um, by male colleagues who, you know, I love them. They're my friends, but listening to them talk about meaning in life and, and the midlife crisis and talking about how they had always been told they were going to be the great man and the great this and the great philosopher. And I thought to myself, no one ever told me that. I think it's a miracle. I mean, I made it through grad school because because I got lots of discouragement. So that was the little, uh, you know, that was sort of the the tip of the. Oh, I don't know the right metaphor, but but it was a bit of a push to thinking. Well, maybe it does actually matter that I've had different experience. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to check to make sure that I've got the book's lexicon down before we get too far, so I beg your pardon for starting slowly. In this book, Goals, 
animate human actions and goals are necessary to make actions deliberate and values are within that set of motivations called goals, those goals which are ultimate rather than instrumental or intermediate. Uh, did I get that basically right? And why are those relationships going to be important to our conversation today? Yeah, well done. Uh, so the only thing I would add, I, I do think the way I define these terms in the book, values are a subset of goals. They're special in that way. But it's not only that they're ultimate. It's also that <clears throat> ideally a person's values will bring together the different parts of their psychology. So um, the best values for a person are the ones that integrate your desires and your emotions and your judgments. And that's not true of all goals. So that's the other thing that distinguishes values from goals. So for the sake of example, I mean, what's a kind of goal that doesn't do that integrating work? Oh, <laughs> well, um, you know, my goal of tasting all the different kinds of cheesecake uh, is, I mean, you could think of all sorts of um, like unhealthy goals that you might have that conflict with your judgments about what's actually good for you. So, so goal is very, very broad and it includes basically anything we want. Um, but there's oftentimes there are things we want that we think we don't think are good for us, or there are things that we feel good about, but we don't we, we, for some reason, talk ourselves into thinking we shouldn't be doing that. So that's that's the sort of thing. Um, the re Why is it important? I think it's important because we do have so many goals that they're going to conflict. You can't do absolutely everything that passes through your mind as a good idea. And that means that we have to prioritize somehow. And I think because values are these special goals that are um, in, are themselves not internal, we're not internally conflicted about them. Uh, they're the right things to prioritize. So that's why that's why the the distinction matters. Right, and your and your discussion of you know, um, and if I use these terms wrong, feel free to correct me at any point. But conscious and unconscious goals uh, was very interesting to me because I mean, of course. Uh, you know, I'm a literature professor. So, I mean, you know, one of the things that we examine whenever we're reading any kind of play, any kind of novel is, you know, what would the character be able to tell you about herself and what would the character be unaware of about herself? So, I mean, um, let me ask you this. I mean, you know, when we examine goals and values philosophically, I mean, uh, how powerful is that examination? Can it make an unconscious goal a conscious one? Or does it have that kind of power? Yeah, I, I almost think that's a kind of psychoanalytic question rather than, than a particularly philosophical question. But just from, from personal experience, I, I think reflection is, it is possible to get at some of our un unconscious goals I don't think reflection is the best method um, because we do have these. Well, if you're a literature professor, you 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 this would make lots of sense to you, I think. But we have narratives about our lives. We tell these stories about what we're like, and and, and those stories include, you know, I'm the kind of person who wants this and not that, and I'm the kind of person who has these lofty goals and not those base crappy goals. Um, so I think those narratives compete with or they make it more difficult to get at the underlying unconscious goal states just by sitting there thinking about it in your, in your room. Right. So we tend to fool ourselves. Would that be too strong or is that? Yeah, on target? No, I, I think that's, that's true. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, not, not intentionally. I don't think we're sitting around, you know, trying to deceive ourselves about what are, what we're really like, but. Right. And and if we are, we're in an Oscar Wilde play, which is fun <laughs> enough on its own. Right. So, you know, uh, I'd, I'd kind of be all right with that just Very because good. I'd be in an Oscar Wilde play. Now, by this point in the book, listeners, we are full speed ahead and you're going to have to go buy the book to get the rest of the structure of conscious and unconscious goals. But before we turn the corner and talk about the practices for navigating these conflicts, I do want to note something that you write late in the second chapter, and then it kind of recurs throughout the book, and that is that prescribing values for other people usually doesn't do any work. 
Now, you return to this at the book's end, like I said, but for our listeners who are worried that we're going to go off the rails into some kind of relativism, uh, what keeps us from doing all of that bad and alliterative stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, so first of all, this is a book and most of my research is about how to live well from your own for your own sake. So it the I think the concept of well-being is a kind of individual concept. It's, you know, well-being is for an individual organism. Um so there there's so the 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 lack of sort of strictures on what your goal can be and my reluctance to say you should want these things and not those things um comes in part from thinking whatever well-being is it has to be something that's attractive to the person whose whose well-being it is but that said i'm pretty impressed with like human nature and how much uh we come into the world with you know, certain kinds of emotional dispositions and goals and desires that are really, really, really hard to shake. And I think most people don't try, shouldn't try to shake them and and wouldn't succeed if they did. Um, but a lot of those aspects of human nature that I'm, you know, I'm glad we have are social. So we're, we are sympathetic creatures, um, unless you're a psych psychopath. Uh, you are going to be inclined to sympathize for with other people, to have compassion for other people, uh, and to really be sad and miserable when you're alone, uh, alone in the sense of you know really lonely. Um, so, so that's I you know so what keeps us from going off the rails into some kind of hideous relativism is it's just the way we are. I, I want to follow up on that because you know um, when I read, I mean, especially Friedrich Nietzsche, but also people who are kind of playing off of his project. I mean, I get the impression that that kind of sympathy that you're talking about is something that is historically contingent. It could have been otherwise. You're talking about it as human nature, as something that's that's maybe transhistorical. Uh, you know, I mean, what kinds of reasons would you give our listeners for regarding it as transhistorical, or am I mischaracterizing the difference here? Wow, yeah. So the I take it that evidence from both evolutionary theory and developmental psychology um make a strong case for thinking that that our social and sympathetic nature is given um so would i say transhistorical and i'm not sure that, that might be a bad term so please <laughs> go ahead, please give me a better term <laughs> yeah but i but i would say unlearned and you know innate um so there's there's fascinating research in developmental psychology with really, really, really young kids, like three to six month year old children, babies, um, who can't talk, but show preferences for people who are helpful rather than hinder hindering of other people doing things. Um, you know, they, they prefer the, the kind puppet to the mean puppet. <laughs> um, and if, if, if that's what we're like before we've really had a chance to learn anything from the world or be acculturated, then I'm, I'm comfortable saying that that's a pretty, it's at least a pretty consistent piece of human nature that, that, um, I, and I think it's been with, so if you look, then if you look at research on evolution, there's good reason to think that it's been with us, that the social aspect of our nature has been with us for a very long time because we just couldn't have survived if we didn't take care right. of each other. That makes good sense. Now, I mean, you're talking about, you know, evolution, you're talking about biological nature. Uh, you know, one of the practices that your third chapter lays down uh, is called the lab rat approach. And I like that term. Um, what kinds of biological and psychological signs manifest when our goals are out of whack? Because, I mean, I, uh, I'll, I'll confess that, you know, again, uh, when, I don't, when I think about values, I don't think about biology first. But your book is trying to teach me to do so. So teach our listeners, too. Right, for sure. I So the lab rat strategy just 
so people uh, who haven't read the book can get a kind of picture of what that they're is. They're all going to they're all going to go read the book, <laughs> Dr. Tiberius. They're all going to go get this book and read it. I like your optimism. This is very good for me. Um, but it's basically sort of taking a third third eye third eye, that's not the right phrase, a, a third person point of view on yourself. So you're looking at yourself as if you were, you know, some organism that you're studying. And I think when people have, you know, needs that they aren't really acknowledging, and those needs are not therefore being satisfied, there are physical results. Uh, so stress, the stress response, which can present itself in lots of different ways for different people. You know, some people get gut problems, other people get headaches. Some people who have, you know, if you have a chronic illness, it might flare up or become worse when, when you're stressed. I sort of think, you know, like, think about what happened during the pandemic. I think you know, there were some people who, 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 I think didn't really take seriously enough the importance of their social goals. And so, you know, you think, well, I mean, I have time to, for people who weren't like, I mean, there were lots of people during the pandemic who had, there were terrible consequences because they lost their jobs and their kids were home all the time. And, and, but, but for some people, um, they thought, okay, I can deal with this. I'm functioning. I can work from home. This is okay. And they, I think a lot of people didn't recognize how much the lack of human contact was affecting them physically. And I know when I, uh, there was a, I forget at what point it was during the pandemic, but I suddenly, um, you know, my husband and I decided we're we're going to rent a place on the North shore of Lake Superior and we're going. And we invited some friends to go with us. We all tested beforehand and we went. So it was like the first time I'd spent time with a, some person, actual physical person other than my husband in months and months. And I hugged my friend and I just started bawling. I just, so, so that's the kind of thing that like la that lack of of um, community with actual other human beings can have these um, physical effects that I would not have predicted that I would ball my eyes out when I hugged a friend. That was news to me. So it's that's that's the kind of thing you have to learn by paying attention to your physical self. And and another approach that you lay down, and there's about four different approaches, if I remember right. Uh, but one of them is listening from others or listening to others, pardon me. Um, and one of the interesting parts of this chapter that I really appreciated is that you focus on the dangers of listening to others as much as you focus on the promise of listening to others. Uh, and it occurs to me, I mean, that that pair of, of benefits and dangers, I mean, it's as old as Plato's dialogues and it's as current as whatever they're calling critical theory this week. But what is it that makes learning from others a risk and a promise? Well, it's, I, I, I'm just thinking, you know, you told me you're, a, I didn't know that you're a literature professor, but now, of course, I, I can't stop thinking about literary examples. And I, my mind always goes to Jane Austen. I don't know why that is, but. That, it's a good um, place to go. Yeah. So you, in, in her novels, you know, you have a lot of examples of, friends who are um i'm just thinking of emma um and you you have there's so many examples in that novel where you have somebody advising like the way emma advises harriet about whom she should marry and it's terrible advice and the advice is terrible because emma has an agenda emma wants harriet to be more like her and to rise in her class status um, but then there are other cases in, in that novel, like where Mr. Knightley tells Emma that she was basically being a, a bad person, treating someone really disrespectfully. And Emma learns from that. And that's really helpful information. So I think we can learn a lot from people who actually have our best interest in mind and in their hearts. But unfortunately, the flip side is, there are a lot of people who don't, who have their own 
interests and who are just not very emotionally intelligent. And so they're not able to distinguish between like, what's, what's what I want out of, you know, out of Valerie and what is what she wants from herself. Oh, that makes very good sense. That makes very good sense. Now, once you walk us through the practices for discerning our values, you turn to prioritizing values. And when we examine which of our goals are instrumental and which ones are ultimate, are the relevant philosophical practices as straightforward as thinking in terms of X for the sake of Y? And if so, why do folks get their priorities out of order so often? And if not, uh, you know, what kinds of things complicate those acts of discernment? Um. Interesting. So I think sometimes what happens for people is that the immediate takes over the important. So I, so that, and that, that seems, that strikes me to be one of the main ways that priorities get out of whack. Um, like, I think a lot of people think that the welfare of their children is more important than some you know, getting promoted in their job. Uh, and yet they might be spending, you know, many times more, um, more, t- more time on the job stuff and more emotional energy expended at work. And they, they kind of are, are dismissing their, their, well, not dismissing their children, but um, feeling to recognize the importance in the moment of those relationships with with their their families um that's a kind of you know that's act, you know that's a stereotype about successful career men who spend all their time at work and ignore their families and then when they retire they're they're depressed because their children don't like them anymore um it is it's a kind of stereotype but i i think what happens is the demands of a career are very urgent and pressing and explicit you know your boss says do this do it now um and or there's a there's a position you could apply for that would get you a promotion and a raise and and that goal is very clear um and it seems obvious what you need to do to get it whereas cultivating a good relationship with your family is a little more amorphous and it just takes time spent uh not any particular it's not like you're taking a step on a ladder. So it's a little, it's a little more, it's a little less clear what you need to do. Right. There's no scoreboard. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. Except when I did it, cause I was coaching my kids T-ball teams, but that's a different kind of scoreboard. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, one practice that I found especially compelling and you kind of already touched on it, but I'd like to hear, I'd like our listeners to hear more of it. Uh, involves reinterpreting professional goals. And I really like this because you don't uh, do the sort of moral absolute thing of saying professional goals are unimportant. Uh, But you do say that, you know, I mean, sometimes other goals, other values call on us to reinterpret what it means to be good in our career. So can you walk us through maybe an example of that? So I could think of an example from my own um, work where, uh, you know, many of us, you come out of grad school, you get a job, you want to be a good teacher. And when I think when you're young, you, you tend to a new teacher, you tend to have some ideas about what it is to be a good teacher. And sometimes you can have ideas that are that are pretty ambitious, like you maybe want to revolutionize the way that this material is taught to attract more people to the major, or you want to use a brand new pedagogy that's going to transform, um, you know, the 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 methods by which the material is taught. And you you have this, you can maybe have these dreamy ambitions that the students are all going to love you. And in, you know, in 10 years, they'll be naming their children after you and writing you thank you notes. And now nobody, that's a bit of a, of an exaggeration, but I think young professionals do have quite ambitious kinds of goals like that. And then, you know, well, I'm sure you do know you teach for 20 years and you realize that's not quite how it worked. (laughs) No, it is not. (laughs) 
And I think instead of thinking, well, I guess I failed, I, I wanted to be a great teacher and I'm just an adequate teacher. I think the better thing to do is to think, well, what does it really mean to be a great teacher? Um, maybe it has more to do with a commitment, with being open to new ideas, so not being stuck uh, like giving the same lecture from the same piece of yellow paper that you used 20 years ago. Maybe it means maybe making all the students love you. That's not, that's not really what a great teacher does, but a great teacher can has have a big influence on a few students. So, um, so I think, you know, this is just the example of teaching, but I think a lot of careers kind of work that way. Like when you're young, before you know what you're capable of and what the work world is like, it's fine to have really ambitious goals. They're motivating. And it's fine to think of success in those terms. But as you get older and you confront reality and think about the way that your career is sort of the drop in a bucket of something worthwhile. Uh, I think the right approach is is changing how you think about success rather than concluding that you failed because you didn't live up to it in the way that your 20-year-old self thought you should. Right. No, that makes very good sense. That makes very good sense. Now, now I do want to touch on one objection that you anticipate and that you address in several parts of the book. And that is that values language, according to the suspicion, is going to trend towards individualism and even egoism. Uh, but you do note that some of our desires might well involve changing unjust social barriers and that resisting injustice can itself become a value. So, I mean, in your view, I mean, how fair or how distorting is the suspicion that, you know, values language is inherently uh, self-serving? Uh, and, you know, when people make that leap, uh, you know, what alternative way to think about it would you recommend? Yeah, I think so. In philosophy, values language isn't thought to be, it, it doesn't have that individualistic sense, because we talk about moral values and political values and aesthetic values. But I I, I was concerned that in a more, a book that isn't just meant for philosophers, that all this attention to individual goals, you know, you are an individual goal-seeking organism, and what is it that you want out of life, that, that that might seem quite individualistic. And I think you're probably right that the values language in our current climate often, you know, it makes people think of like corporate values and things that, um, that are, <laughs> that, that seem to, do, to have to do with individualism. So I guess, you know, what I, I think about that is that values are as individualistic as we are. So, you know, most people have values that involve other people. I mean, I think some of the, the most dear values that I have are my relationships with my husband and my parents and my siblings and my friends. I value those people. I value, I value my relationships with my students and my colleagues. And I also think, so it's not just that, I mean, partly we just value relationships and other people, but I think a lot of the other things we value are not entirely individualistic when you think about it. So you know, if you're someone who values like sports, you mentioned coaching your your sons. Was it T-ball? My my son and my daughter. Yep. There, there you go. Yeah. And so, if you value sports, like you need a team, you need a coach, you need another team to play against, you need a whole community to support that. You need a field. Um, similarly with music, you know. Um, you got to have a teacher, uh, even if the teacher's on YouTube, but still another person, um, people to play with, people to listen to you, people to write the music that you play. And so I, I, I guess I think our, our values, if you actually think about what human beings value, the values themselves are not very individualistic. And I don't know whether that's good enough, because I, I don't know how strong that tendency is among people to think 
in individualistic terms. What do you, what do you think? Oh man. Well, the, oh, gosh. Yeah. This is one that I think about a lot. And, you know, I mean, one of the, the social trends that, you know, I always look towards uh, is that, you know, the people who are my students age uh, and, you know, I've been teaching for 23 years. So that's a, that's a fairly broad demographic there. Uh, but it seems that as the years roll on, they become less and less inclined to, you know, what I would call stability when it comes to their lives. I mean, they don't want to marry. They don't want to find a place to live and live there. I mean, it, that they they have a desire for an escape hatch that, I mean, might be present among people my age, but I didn't see it as much among people in my age. So, I mean, it's it's a concern that I have. I don't have any answers to it, but that that's the kind of question I'm asking. Yeah, I I worry about the youth of today. I mean, they're kids they're, these days. <laughs> it's, it's really true. I'm glad we both have gray hair. Um, it I yeah I I I feel for them because there's so many challenges right now. You know, we're politically torn apart, and climate change is threatening it, 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 they feel very threatened by it you know it and i just i can i i can, i sympathize with with their rejection of stability if that's what it is because they don't i think they're frightened about their futures and that they're not going to find it so they should give up now yeah yeah it's um, troubling it is it is <laughs> Now, I, I guess I'll use that troubling as a segue here because you do invoke the book Educated, uh, which is a memoir that my wife has read and told me about, but I've not read myself. So if I get any of the details wrong, let me know. But uh, when you discuss radical changes in values in chapter six, uh, you make reference to that story and the fact that, I mean, you know, uh, we really have to tell the story of goal seeking uh, in order to account for those radical changes in values. So when we do tell those stories, what role does that goal-seeking nature play in those stories of radical conversion, whether we're talking about religious conversion or partisan conversion or whatever other kind of conversion? Yeah, so I, the way I thought about this chapter, it was kind of actually as a challenge to my whole perspective on things, because I thought if if you know if you have the sort of view i have it seems like all the progress you can make is incremental you start with the values that you have and you can modify them you can you can change their priority you can change uh how you interpret them but there on on the view that i have there there's really nothing about like what if all your values are wrong and you you know you just need a completely different set and i so that's that's what got me thinking about um, Westover because she, you know, is a real life example of someone who whose values really do undergo a very profound transformation. Um, and so I'm actually it, it's kind of a it, that sort of radical transformation is something it's not easy for me to account for or explain. And I I'm a little bit inclined to think that often when that actually happens to people, it's something that comes from outside, not from within. So they're not trying to make a radical change, but instead, you know, they experience something that forces the change. Um, I guess the thing from my point of view is that if the chain, if that radical change is going to be something that you are involved in as an agent rather than just getting brainwashed or something or drugged. Uh, there has to be some connection between what you started with and where you're going. Right. It right. carries you through. And for, for Westover, for Tara Westover in the book educated, I think what carries her through is her curiosity and her intellectual interests, which she's just sort of born with. And that leads her to change a lot of other things. Right, right. It, it reminds me of uh, some recent writings of the church historian Diana Butler Bass, and and she's she's one with whom I often agree and with whom I often disagree. But on this one, I think she's pretty well on target that, you know, when we talk about uh, the phenomenon of Trumpism, which is something that she writes a fair bit about, 
that, uh, you know, when people tell stories of leaving the sort of, you know, what, whether you call it Christian nationalist or alt-right or Trumpist uh, way of life uh, for some other way of life, that it resembles a religious conversion more than it resembles, uh, you know, switching, you know, car brands or switching jobs even. So, I mean, I, I, you know, the, this question of radical conversion, you know, like I said, when I try to think about it, I can't think of any better account than that. So it makes a fair bit of sense to me. That's fascinating. I should look into her book. That sounds really cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, you know, she is, she is brilliant and, you know, uh, when I disagree with her, I always try to suspect myself first and then suspect her second. Yeah, that's really good. I'm going to get wonky for a moment here uh, because I know there's a philosophical dispute waiting behind the, the page that for perfectly good authorly reasons you don't dig into. Uh, but since I have occasion now and since I've got you on the microphone, I'm going to ask. So in your chapter on the social potential of value, values language, uh, which is chapter seven, you say almost in passing that values should take their roots in our evolutionary biological development as a species. We've touched on this. I want to dig into it a little bit more. But the ghost of my own 21-year-old philosophy major self pipes up at that point and says, doesn't that presume that we can arrive at an ought from the starting point of an established is? Didn't Immanuel Kant say that we couldn't do that? So after I assure our readers that you had the good sense not to devote any ink to Kant in this book, uh, how do ought and is relate to each other in the context of values? You know, in an early draft, I had a reference to Kant and my sister suggested removing it. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and Kant isn't the only one. Uh, in fact, uh, I agree with the philosophers who say you can't derive an ought from an is, but so I guess I'm going to have to get wonky in response. I th so Oh, get wonky. Our <laughs> listeners love it. Yeah. So my, my view is that um, nature constrains what the oughts can be. So you could think of it as a kind of like, I think that the ought claims judgment, the judgments about what we ought to do or what really matters or, you know, the value stuff um, you could think of it as uh, the result of a kind of process. So the right, like, value statements, oughts and, and what's good and that sort of thing, are going to result from a reflective process on some starting points. So nature does provide us with a lot of starting points, the values that I think we are, you know, born to have, really. Um, and also have uh, reinforced by our cultures and our families. Those values are starting points, but to make them into true oughts, um, they have to survive a kind of re reflective scrutiny. That's that's basically the view. That's how I get out of this bind. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good because I, I, you know, one approach that I've seen. Uh, just in my own reading around, and, and this largely comes from from Christian theologians like Catherine Pickstock and John Milbank and David Bentley Hart, but they make the move to say that aesthetics is the branch of theology that you know has the or the branch of philosophy, pardon me, that has the best potential to bridge the is and the ought, uh, because there's no logical and there's no metaphysical link that you know is demonstrable. Uh, but if you move to the aesthetic, because it is both universal and also internal, that, you know, I mean, you can actually, uh, you know, make some kind of move. And I mean, that that's where they also turn to the notion of religious conversion as an aesthetic phenomenon rather than as a logical or a metaphysical phenomenon. Huh. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it does seem true about it. And aesthetic. they say it better than that, by the way. I, that was... <laughs> That was the Shakespeare professor's attempt to uh, articulate high-level Christian theology. Yeah, it sounded pretty good to me. <laughs> One implication of that natural desire for affiliation that you write about is that sometimes we do intervene when we discern that other people's goals are harmful. So here's another annoying undergraduate question for you. Uh, who gets to decide which goals are harmful, and is intervention a right, a duty, a vocation or some other abstract noun? 
I, I got to tell you, I wish my undergraduates asked these kinds of questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you see, I'm also delusional. I thought that I, I thought that I was actually the smart 25 years ago. So now I project backward on them. <laughs> nice. Um, right. So I think this is a really tricky, tricky problem. And I also I think there's no sort of general prescription because it's going to depend a lot on the context of the relationship that you're in with the person who, you know, let's say is screwing up their life, valuing the wrong things, pursuing the wrong goals. And so I think the best that one can do as a as a philosopher or as someone who's thinking about this question in the abstract is to think like, what are the variables that make a difference? Because I think sometimes... I think sometimes we jump too quickly to criti criticize another person for their goals and to to judge and to say, you know, this you're spending your life on something stupid um, because it's different from what we want. Uh, but there are other times where we see somebody who, you know, is really making harmful choices. And it's very obvious, you know, someone who's um, who has a drug addiction or who is attracted to partners who are abusive or these these kinds of cases where it's pretty clear, like, no, we, sh we shouldn't help somebody uh, get their heroin fix if that's that's their goal. That's something where we should find a way to get them not to have that goal anymore and do whatever right. we can. That, that That's one that I always put in front of my uh, ministry majors is uh, if you ever encounter a pair of alcoholics, don't tell them do unto others as you would do uh, as you would have them do unto you. That That's the worst thing to tell them. Exactly. Yes. That. Oh, well, that could bring me back to Kant, but I'll spare you. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what I always tell my students that what Kant thinks is not the same as the golden rule. So oh, goodness. Yes. No. Yeah. No, I absolutely. I've, I've yeah. tried to teach that and often failed. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's a good example of perpetual failure. Um, so I think with, you know, with so we have like the extreme cases where a per, let's say a person wants to, um, you know, they want to learn to tap dance. I recently took a tap dancing class and maybe their friends think, oh, my God, what on earth is she doing? That's so stupid. And there's a case where I think just let your friend tap dance, you know, back off, stop being so judgmental. And then on the other extreme, you have the cases of addiction and, and truly harmful behaviors that the problematic cases are in the middle where it's it's like, well, is this, you know, maybe some you have a friend who's choosing a career path and you think they don't have that much talent for that and they're way better at this other thing. But that's really tricky to know at what point should you intervene because they're not it's not like they're choosing to do something that's harmful. It just seems to you to be not the best. Um, and there I think we have to be as friends or family members, I think we have to be really careful not to alienate the person so they never come to us for advice again and, you know, not to be too um close-minded about how other people think about things. Um, so yeah, I think that it's a great question and it's really hard, hard to answer in life. Well, I, I guess it's a, it's a comfort to know that it is a difficult question and I didn't just uh, swing and miss it, swing and miss at an easy one. We're going to go to the last full chapter here and it deals with moral values in particular. We've mentioned these before, but we're going to dig into it in some depth here. You note that for most people that you and I have met, moral absolutism and moral relativism don't really present a large and probable danger. Uh, instead, you note that people tend to gravitate towards moral values that work. So here's one more annoying undergraduate question, or at least how I imagine myself as an undergraduate question. Um, what kind of work? To what extent, if at all, should historical musings on morals like Nietzsche's give us pause when we make assertions like these morals work. Uh, are some kinds of work better than other kinds of work, morally speaking? Yeah. So, I mean, the quick way for me to answer this question would be to say, I don't know. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, I was not attempting to provide a, a moral theory in this book, I guess. I, But I, I do think... So when I think about 
moral values and moral norms. Um, I tend to think in what in philosophy would be called, called kind of contractualist terms. So we are a group of people trying to figure out how to live with each other, uh, how to cooperate, how to collaborate, how to get along. And we have to um, settle on some values and norms that everyone can can accept that 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 so that's the sense of working that I that I'm thinking about that um, it has to be you have to have a set of norms that um, that no one has a complaint a reasonable complaint about in a way um, and you know that's like way easier said than done so I think that set of moral norms is always going to be a kind of ideal and real people fall short of that ideal. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I'll go ahead and say that, I mean, I am a weird case in so many ways, but I mean, one of the reasons I'm a weird case is that I grew up in central Indiana. And so I went to high school with actual Ku Klux Klan members. And, you know, so I mean, when I went, when, and you haven't said this and you didn't write this, so let me let that be my preamble. But when I hear people whose broad approach is, you know, just uh trust your moral sentiments. I think of Jim from algebra class and I say, oh, heavens, no, don't trust your moral sentiments. Uh, that's the worst thing that Jim from algebra class could do because his moral sentiments are terrible. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll confess the reason that these questions come up and why I was such an irritating philosophy student 25 years ago uh, is partly, because I mean, partly because I'm just irritating, but partly because, you know, that was my formative experience is that, you know, sitting behind me in algebra two was an actual hood wearing Ku Klux Klan member. Wow. That's, that's an intense experience to have as a young person. And, and it has shaped me ever since I, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm not a moral relativist. I think when I talk about moral values being the result of, of a kind of, um, conversation, um, like a discourse, uh, I don't think that that's like the kind of um, procedure that would result in the right moral values is going to be one that's heavily constrained and very specific. Everybody has to have equal standing. People have to have mutual respect of each other. So I, I think that your KKK um, classmate would get... <laughs> Um, his views would not withstand the kind of conversation that I think produces the right set of moral values. Yeah, so it's it. I am I'm less relativistic than or than than the sort of like oh it, whatever you feel, go with your gut. Okay, good, 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 <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, and sure. I mean, like, like I said, I mean, I, I think that that experience made me allergic to you know sort of Adam Smith, David Hume style sentimentalism and morals. I'm like, oh gosh, I, not everyone has the same kind of feelings. I assure you. I but could uh, see that. Yep. all right, I, I have let my 20th century self run by wild for a bit. So I want to ask you a question that shouldn't involve indulging my younger self. Uh, when I read this book, I hope that a broad readership picks it up and learns to pose better questions than the shrillest social media voices seem capable of posing. But I want to hear your vision. Uh, when Valerie Tiberius becomes our nation's philosophical guru, uh, you know, what kinds of things will people do that will uh, make their lives a little bit less terrible? I love that. Is is, is that position open? The uh, yeah, yeah, you know what? Send your resume. I'll see what we can do. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I recently was asked in an interview what I would do if I was made queen of the universe. Wow, that's I think that's bigger than philosophical guru. So I, I think it I, is. I, I suddenly feel like my ambitions weren't big enough. Yeah. So I I guess I think that the 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 message I I would like people to take to heart most I think is this idea that, you know, it's important to know what our central core values are and to try to live our lives in ways that live up to those and not get distracted by lots of little things that are less important. 
uh, and, you know, to sort of keep your eye on the prize and think, well, what matters is these things. And it's not always things, um, you know, for most people, I think the, the values that are best for us are things like family and friendship and meaningful work and community and um, probably for your listeners, um, a spiritual practice or religious connection and community. Uh, so those values, I think, are are some of the ones that should be really foremost in our minds when we're making decisions and thinking about how to live our lives. Uh, but also, one thing I think it's good not to forget about is for many of us, we also value ways of being in the world, like being kind or having integrity, um, being courageous or perseverant. Um, so I think they're also you know, personal characteristics that we value that are important. And uh, if we get caught up in the stuff that maybe actually doesn't matter that much, we can sometimes let those good character traits kind of disintegrate while we, <laughs> while we pursue, um, you know, more money or more stuff or more likes on social media. Man, likes on social media. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that that that's another conversation entirely, and that and that's where uh, you know when I teach uh, Plato's Crito, I always focus in on the uh, do not concern yourself, Crito, with what many people think, but with with good people think. And I say, yeah. I, I uh, that's something that social media stats will not tell you. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about goals, values, or whatever else as we head for the door? You know, I mean, I think I just, what I said in answer to your previous question is one thing that I do hope people would take out the door. But I suppose that the the other thing, and this does relate again to my you know, soon to be position as the national philosophical guru. Uh, I think I'm just really concerned right now about fake, um, deep fakes and AI and, uh, and fake news and the social media, all the, all these things that seem to be um, putting at risk our connection with reality. And I guess I, I think, you know, you could see this in value fulfillment terms. You could think we need to value being in touch with what reality is. And in order to respect that value, we might need to make some some changes and to think hard <laughs> as a nation about what we're going to do with some of this new technology. Valerie Tiberius, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks so much. This was so fun. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is What Do You Want Out of Life from Princeton University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>